Premier League has a record-breaking new media deal. Plus, we'll look at ESPN embracing the split screens phenomenon, the fallout from Florida State being left out of the college football playoff, and later we'll dive into the phenomenon of new stadium projects coming with massive new developments around them. It's Tuesday, December 5th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The Premier League has secured a record $8.5 billion in new media rights deals. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. So give us the basics on this new set of deals. So we've got a new domestic rights package. Uh, the Premier League went out uh, uh, to take bids on the rights, much like any of the U.S.-based properties, the NFL, the NBA, NASCAR, whoever has done. And they've come back and they've kind of stuck with the incumbents for the most part. So uh, Comcast owns Sky Sports is back in with a live rights package. Warner Brothers Discovery's TNT, which used to be BT Sport, they are in as well still. And uh, the BBC has a highlights package. Uh, but notable on this is that there is not a streaming player in, in the new term that's going to run from 20, 2025 to 2029. Amazon currently has a small rights package, uh, but they will not be part of this next term, nor will any other streaming-based entity. Yeah, and before we get into the actual deal, kind of notable that Amazon is no longer part of this. They felt like they had worked their way into you know one of these major sports properties overseas, and surprising to see for me to see them back out. Yeah, it was interesting the way that they structured it, that there were big chunks of uh, games, the way the rights were carved up uh, and put on offer by the Premier League. And thus far, Amazon has been pretty targeted in how it's gotten into a lot of these international rights. They've got some League One rights in France. They've got some rights in Brazil. Their big European holding is the Champions League. But it's been very measured, very targeted, a lot of sort of test and adapt. And to do a big multi-billion dollar deal, you know, outside of the NFL, that's not been uh, Amazon's MO thus far. So they're going to sit out this next term. And where do these deals, that $8.5 billion figure over four years, where does that put the Premier League compared to, you know, I guess we could throw it MLS, but I was thinking Serie A, League One, Bundesliga, where is, you know, it's at the top of the pecking order, but what, how, what, what new information yeah, does this give us? It's nearly 2x Serie A um, and, you know, a, a pretty good distance over all the other leagues. This really does reassert um, their status as the king of the mountain, certainly in Europe and really one of the big soccer leagues around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not even counting their uh, overseas rights, which right. used to which be here in uh, the States, more than the domestic very rights. considerable. Yeah, right. Yeah, they pre before this deal, they were the, the overseas rights totaled more than the domestic rights. I think now the domestic rights have uh, are, are back on top. In but the, very meaningful in both camps. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you're watching out for? Um, just on this story. Uh just very uh, interested to see how this ends up sort of playing in the transfer market. This was not a huge increase. It's a record deal for the UK, but still only about a four percent increase. Um, 
is that going to be enough to sort of counter against Saudi money that is transforming soccer and the player transfer market? Uh, the Bundesliga is out getting private equity money. You've got La Liga sort of mounting up and sort of getting their house in order as well. Um, it's sort of an economic arms race across the international soccer landscape. And what I'm curious is, is whether this sort of modest increase at the Premier League got, is that going to be enough to sort of maintain their status over the uh, length of the term? Yeah, should be interesting to watch. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Always a pleasure. Multitasking doesn't work, but split-screening sports games kind of does. With sports where there are a lot of gaps between plays and obviously you have commercial breaks too, you can absorb most of two games at the same time if your screen situation allows for that. Front Office Sports has learned that ESPN is embracing this phenomenon at least for one night. On Monday, December 11th, the Manning brothers will be doing a simultaneous alt-cast for the game between the Tennessee Titans and Miami Dolphins, and the concurrent game between the New York Giants and Green Bay Packers. The main broadcast will be on sister networks ESPN and ABC, with Peyton and Eli on ESPN2 and ESPN+. And if anything, this will probably make things easier for the Mannings. The Giants and Titans are both 4-8 and eight right now. It's very possible that at least one of these games will not be super interesting by the fourth quarter. Better to risk having too much to talk about than not enough. And if your alt-cast is good enough, why not do this for more sports? Florida legislators want you to know that they are not happy about Florida State being left out of the college football playoff. Florida State Senator and former NFL player Corey Simon wrote, quote, The corruption of college football rears its ugly head again. ESPN and Disney have a vested interest in the SEC participating in the CFP. Lawsuits should be filed tomorrow. Governor Ron DeSantis issued a statement. A certain other presidential candidate said that this is the first time a Power 5 school has been left out of the CFP, which is not accurate. But Senator Rick Scott went the furthest, writing a letter to Selection Committee Chairman Boo Corrigan, which included 10 requests. Among those, Scott wants any and all written communications, such as emails and texts, between Selection Committee members and anyone associated with the CFP, the SEC, and ESPN. And look, FSU obviously was the expected, less controversial pick, but the CFP wants three closely fought games. If you watch the video of Michigan finding out that they're playing Alabama, it's clear enough that they would have preferred FSU and its third-string quarterback. The selection committee had to choose between past results and expected future results. I don't know if they made the right decision, but there's more logic to what they did than certain Floridians are willing to admit right now. The Arizona Coyotes may be finally ready to move out of college, eventually. The team is in year two of their strange situation playing at Arizona State's Mullet Arena, which at a capacity of 4,600 is less than a third the size of any other NHL venue. They had a whole plan for a new arena in Tempe, plus a surrounding development with housing, retail, but voters resoundingly rejected that idea in May. But the team and the NHL have not given up on the Phoenix area and are considering sites in Phoenix itself, as well as neighboring Glendale, and they still want to include housing, hotels, restaurants, shops, a practice rink, and a sports book. They want to do all that while not requiring a public vote, given how well that went last time, but that could get tricky because they also want tax abatements for their otherwise privately funded project. And they want all of this to happen as fast as possible, because for now they're stuck in college. They're going to be at ASU at least two or three more years, and until they leave, they're not going to feel like a real hockey team. Speaking of the mini-city phenomenon, in which almost any time we have a new stadium or arena, we also have a surrounding development. The Atlanta Braves popularized this with the battery. Chicago Bears want to do something similar with their new stadium, whatever that happens. Ditto the uh, Philadelphia 76ers in downtown Philly. One reason the Oakland A's project fell apart in Oakland is that they weren't just trying to build a new stadium, they wanted to create a whole new neighborhood. 
This is something I've been interested in for a while, and I got to speak to real estate attorney Kevin Rowe, who's worked on major multifaceted projects on why these mini cities have gone from something to a novelty to an expectation in just a few years. That conversation is coming up next. All right, very excited to be joined now by Kevin Rowe, shareholder at Buckholter. Welcome, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to have you. So it seems like almost any time a major team builds a new stadium, it's never just the stadium. It's retail, hotels, housing, sometimes creating a whole new neighborhood around the stadium. Um, and I wanted to have you on to try to get inside this trend. For starters, what do you think is driving this phenomenon? Um, I think I think two things. I think that cities feel like sports arenas are good for them as far as being a vehicle for economic growth for the city. Um, it support they support restaurants, they support venues, they support um, a lot of different development around arenas. So I think that's part of it. Also, the part of it is the arenas are really expensive to build. And they are their own separate animal in connection with the operation of a major sports team. So a natural uh, thing to do if you're an owner of a sports team is to reach out to your municipality and see if you can have some participation with respect to that um, endeavor. So it tends to create a public-private partnership with respect to the development of a sports arena in a city. Yeah, and that makes sense. And it sort of speaks to some of the elements I want to get into. Um do we have a sense, and this has been a, a topic of debate that I've seen among you know economist types around how much synergy there is between an arena, a stadium, and the businesses around it, because some people they're just there to see a game and they're not necessarily gonna have dinner. Some people, you know, might stick around for dinner or drink, whatever. Um, do we have a sense of what kind of economic synergy there is there? Well, I think there definitely is a connection between having a successful sports team in the middle of a city and um, watching a city develop. And I can give you two examples. Um, Southern Seattle, with respect to their arenas, they have the Seahawks arena and then next to it, they have the Mariners arena. And since that arena has been developed, there has been uh, a lot of infill development naturally occurring around those two arenas as an outgrowth of those arenas. And, And also, if you think about it, if you get um, an arena and you get good restaurants and you have good amenities, then for a city, then that's a good location for developers to want to um, create um, multifamily projects, um, for sale condominium projects, those kind of infill development is a natural follow-up. So I think there's a lot of synergy between um, having a successful arena within a city and having developments follow that. Yeah, so it sounds like from what you're saying that the what we're calling the mini city phenomenon of, you know, we see these grand renderings of there's the stadium, but, you know, then there's everything else around it. Um, that's kind of taking what might be a progression over a decade or two where, okay, we got the stadium, maybe we'll add some restaurants. Okay, we got the restaurants, maybe we'll add some housing. Um, and just saying, let's just do it all at once because we it, it all works together anyway. Yeah, and I, th- and I think that also, um, again, if you do that with the city, they're going, you know, if they're going to help with the funding of an arena, then they're going to want to have their tax base increase to pay for that funding because you're using city, you're using funds that would 
you potentially be allocated somewhere else toward helping that arena. So you're going to want to accelerate your tax revenues in connection with supporting an arena. So I think there's a natural reason to accelerate something that would occur over time anyway. This is, you know, as our, our listeners of this podcast know, sort of a, a personal uh, issue of mine is the whole situation in Oakland, which is obviously a, a much bigger narrative here. One of the interesting uh, pieces of that puzzle as we try to figure out, you know, why the A's are leaving, uh, why the deal didn't work. There was a piece of reporting that said that their owner, John Fisher, wanted to uh, have everything at once, have the new stadium in Oakland, the new stadium and all the, the housing and the restaurants and hotels and everything else all at the same time uh, so that those those smaller projects, the hotels, the restaurants could help pay for the stadium uh, because he could perhaps lease those out to other developers. Does that, um, does that make sense as someone who does these deals? I don't think one entity has the expertise to do all of the related developments in one project. You know, for example, um, we helped, we did a financing transaction with a, um, a multifamily project in Atlanta, close to the new stadium there. The developer had nothing to do with the people who, you know, with the Braves, they just were, uh, you know, benefiting by finding a piece of property that was part of that master plan for that stadium and building a multifamily project in a good location. So I think it's really hard to have all of those things happen at the same time. Yeah. I mean, Oakland was quick to say, if, if you had wanted just the stadium, we could have done that years ago. And you know, the, the complexity and the size of the project was one of the reasons it, it didn't work out, even though Oakland raised, you know, close to half a billion dollars for it. Um, if you look at, if you look at San Francisco, that's an example of, you know, with where the the Giants ballpark, you know, in the in the new Warriors Arena, they didn't that was they were just that was synergistic development created after the fact with both of those stadiums, right? It wasn't all together right. at the beginning. Right. Yeah. They just they found a good location. The Giants are right on the water and and yeah, there are some uh some restaurants where you can get some very expensive fries and things and, and beers to <laughs> enjoy before right. a game. Right. But I think, I mean, um, I think that's uh, almost, you know, I think that's half of the picture. I think if you want, if you really want to be a successful um, kind of mini city um, sports complex, you need to have more elements than just a couple of restaurants. Right. And I think that's the trick is to be able to figure out how to revitalize an area. Cause you know, the other thing that's really hard is how do you find the, the land to put that kind of a facility, right? That's pretty hard in a urban setting. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that makes me think of the situation with the Philadelphia 76ers right now, where, you know, they're saying we, we want to put a stadium downtown or in Reno, I mean, downtown and yeah, do a lot of these developments around it. Um, and they're saying this can revitalize a neighborhood. And I think it can certainly help. I'm wondering what you think are the pieces of that puzzle that, you know, if we are making a, a big claim, which is this whole project can revitalize a neighborhood, what would that entail? Well, I think what you would need to do is figure out where your property is and how you get a hold of that property. And if you're a private individual, you have limited ability to um, assemble 
a big enough piece of real estate in, the, in an urban city to do that kind of a development, which is why it becomes also a public-private partnership because the public has uh, the ability to you know use their eminent domain powers. And in that circumstance, they can condemn property for a public purpose. Then they can um, pay fair market value versus paying whatever the last person that holds out is demanding. So it's an easier way to assemble property than they can assist with respect to land usage approvals, uh, reparcelization, so that you have a developable piece of property. And so that's another reason why you really need to have a municipality involved with those kind of inner city projects. I mean, obviously, if you do what Jerry Johnson did, Jerry Jones did and build a stadium in Dallas on a big, big piece of property that's in, in between two big cities, then, then you can do that easier because you can find that piece of property. If you want to do something in downtown Philadelphia, that's a completely different proposition. Um, the issue of public financing for, for stadiums and arenas is, you know, it's always a contentious one. Uh, but municipalities and states tend to offer up money, uh, especially when a team says, well, we, we might get a better deal somewhere else. Um, and there's this tension of a team uh, as an economic driver, but also as a cultural, you know, something that is valued in the culture. If we try to just kind of cordon off the cultural part of it and just look at the economics, is there a reliable way to calculate um, the economic impact of having a team in a, in a certain spot uh, versus if they weren't there and people just had to find other things to spend their time and money on. Um, is there a way to know like w- economically what a team is worth um, or what a new stadium is worth to a, a certain spot that would maybe provide some guidance around how much these places should in theory be, be, you know, paying up to keep them around? Yeah, I think, I think again, we live in an information age that you can spend anything way you want to, spend it right. But I think the way that you would justify that is to look at the revenues between property taxes, sales tax, those types of revenues in an area before you put an arena there. And then maybe 10 years later, look at that impact and see what the difference is and whether that investment paid for itself with respect to the growth in sales tax, property tax, those type of revenues coming back to the city. So I think that's really why it's such a controversial issue and why it's always a matter of political power and political favor is, um, you know, you can, you can make the argument that it's not worth it and you can certainly create the numbers and you can find a case study that says, see what this arena did for this city. But um, I think that's what you would look at. You would look at property tax revenues. You would look at sales tax revenue. You would look at maybe um, people coming into your city, job growth. There's a lot of different things you could argue are benefited by the existence of that type of development within a city. And you could use your numbers to show that it was worth the public investment. Um, Yeah, very interesting stuff. Kevin Rowe, thanks so much for joining us on the show. thanks Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. That's it for today. If you're not subscribed to this show, do it. We're coming at you with the biggest stories in this space every weekday. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.